You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, amen. Let me invite you to turn with me to our text for this morning, which is still in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Many of you know that at the beginning of this year, really before the beginning of this year, we, we made a decision to take on a heavy task in 2022, and that is to uh, preach through the book of Revelation. And for many of us, the idea of preaching through or hearing a sermon series through the book of Revelation opens up so many kind of anticipations and excitements because the book of Revelation is mysterious. It is exciting. There are a lot of things that are confounding to us. But as you know, our approach to the book of Revelation has been a little more down to earth. Our goal is not to be able to unlock all of these secrets or mysteries and get a, a, get a corner on the market of what will happen in the future, but rather to do what we believe the book of Revelation is intended to do, and that is to exalt Jesus Christ by giving us a glimpse of his supremacy in the future, but also for today. And so over these past few months, we have been doing just that, working our way now up to the beginning of chapter 6, as we have been looking for Christ. We've been exalting Christ, and we want to continue doing that today, not only looking to the future and the wonderful realities that belong to us who are in Christ by faith, but also to mine from the words of Scripture truth for today, that that future reality would change the way that we live today. And we intend to do that again this morning as we come to a new chapter in Revelation, chapter 6, just looking at verses 1 and 2. Just a couple of nights ago, I had an interesting experience with the book of Revelation. You know, preaching through the book requires a lot of attention, and so I often have uh, commentaries with me when I go out of town because I need to be uh, uh, studying what the Word of God says and preparing to to open the Word with you uh, Sunday by Sunday when I'm preaching. And uh, just this past weekend, my oldest daughter and I were at a college preview weekend in Louisville and staying on the on-campus hotel. And so at about 11 o'clock, there were some storms that came through and started to whip up winds and some rain and actually uh, spun off some tornadoes somewhere out in the distance from where we were, but it was all over the news. It was, it was interrupting my watching of the NCAA basketball tournament, which was most disappointing. And then we got a phone call in the room at about 11 p.m. And the relatively new desk clerk Immediately started talking uh, almost as fast as he possibly could. Sir, or have you heard these tornado sirens? Yes, I've heard the tornado sirens. Uh, we want you to know that we have prepared a shelter for you. If you go down the middle stairs all the way down to the metal door, you can go inside and that's where everyone will be. Do you understand what I've said to you? Yes, I understand what you've said to me. We encourage you to go there right now. So sort of reluctantly, you know, it's a little rain, it's a little wind, but we did hear the sirens and so we probably made a good judgment call and went down to the shelter. But when we went down there, it was basically a basement down inside, a, a, sort of a lot like this, though underground. Uh, but what was so interesting was when we got down there, uh, uh, understandably, I put some people off because I, I, I rolled in with a stack of, ro- of Revelation commentaries <laughs> in the midst of this event. And a few people looked at me like, do you know something that we don't know? <laughs> Um, you're making us nervous. Why do you have commentaries in Revelation? But it was one of those moments where it brought back 
to me just how we tend to think about the book of Revelation. When the book of Revelation is mentioned, when it's opened, it carries with it a kind of seriousness, a seriousness that, that it knows something we don't know. It understands something that we don't understand, but it's not taken lightly or flippantly. It's not just about something off in the future, this dream world, this, this exciting event that's going to happen someday, but the thought is it has something to do with our lives today, and indeed it does. And so we come to chapter 6 with that hope that we can mine from the words of Scripture truth for today as we better understand what are some mysteries in the book of Revelation here in the first two verses of chapter 6. Well, what we want to do is uh, set a little context here for ourselves and, and catch up again from where we have been in Revelation. It'll help us understand these next few verses, uh, really just two this morning. If you think back about our time in the first three chapters of Revelation, you remember that that was mostly the communication of the Lord to seven churches on earth. And those letters to those churches, those messages, were used to remind them and now us of some of the things that God loves in his church. He loves the discipline of godly living. He loves a growing love and gladness and joy about him. And he loves a growing love for other people. Then in chapters 4 and 5, the scene shifts from earth to heaven. And we have this scene in heaven of, of the throne of God. And this, our, our incredible triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there in heaven being worshipped by four living creatures who are astounding in appearance. They're all a little different than the other, though they all have eyes all around them, reminding us of the omniscience of God, that he knows all things and putting on display his supremacy as they with different kinds of faces and bodies, one like a lion, one like a calf, one like a man, one like an eagle soaring on the wind, saying over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. But now shifting from that vision in heaven, we now come to this first look at the unpacking or unfolding, the revealing of some important things in the future. And so we bring that context here to this passage, and the next few sermons will sort of stick together as we look at seven seals that are broken on the scroll of redemptive history or future redemptive history. And as we look at this, we are reminded of one of the most recognizable symbols in the book of Revelation, and that is the four horsemen. So this morning, what we're going to do is just look at the first two verses of chapter 6, and we will just be considering the first of the four horsemen. But again, because context is so important to us, what we should do is, is go ahead and read forward together a little, actually verses 1 down through 8 to see the first four seals and those four horsemen. And then as we do that, we'll come back to verses 1 and 2, and we pray that God will give us wisdom to make good use of those two verses for our lives today and to prepare us again for what is to come. Listen to these words in the book of Revelation, starting in, in chapter 6, verse 1. Then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with the voice of thunder, come. I looked and behold, a white horse and the one who sat on it had a bow 
and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. And the people would kill one another, and a large sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, a black horse. And the one who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures saying, The fourth living creature saying, Come, I looked and behold an ashen horse. And the one who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and plague and by the wild animals of the earth. These are heavy words and we need God's wisdom to understand them. I think we ought to pray once more and then spend some time in these two verses at the beginning of chapter six. Our Father, this morning we come to you yet again. We cannot come to you enough because of our dependence upon you. It is true that we are entirely dependent in every way upon you, not just for our physical lives, but spiritually we are dependent. We know nothing apart from you. We cannot make sense of this world, past, present, or future, even our own lives, apart from the revelation of your word, your ongoing work by your spirit who who leads us into truth as your people and helps us to understand what you have said to us in your word. And so we ask you this morning, at this of of all times, perhaps one of the most important times, as we consider these important words in the book of Revelation, that you would give us wisdom. Open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears. Give us sense so that we can make sense of what you have said to us here. We pray that your word would not go in one ear and out the other or hit our hearts and fall to the ground, but it would take root, that would grow good fruit in our lives and in our church, in our families, in our community, in our world, because we want to know you and we want to make you known. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that we notice in the book of Revelation as it starts to look toward the future and we read about some pretty heavy, sometimes terrifying events that God is promising to come in the future, though they they do seem kind of fuzzy to our vision because because we, as we read about the, these events, they, they are somewhat hidden from us. Yet we read the book of Revelation as literally as we possibly can, looking forward to this, and so we need God's help. But what we see as we look at the book of Revelation is not just things that are going to happen in the future, but we also see a connection to a pattern of things that have been happening in the world for a long time. And when we come to, in particular, chapter 6, we have what I believe to be a future intensifying of those patterns. We'll see a little bit more of that in just a moment as we work our way down into verse 2, but we want to begin in verse 1 as we notice the first of three important truths to help us get a good start on on chapter 6 in Revelation. Here's the first truth, and it's one that we want to be our first truth. It says a lot about where we as Christians always start 
We don't start with ourselves. We don't start with our world. We always, in our thinking, in our living, in our believing, we start with God. That's where the word of God always starts. He is what makes everything else make sense. He is our environment. He is the one who reigns and rules over everything. And he is the one who makes all of life come together for us. And so here's the first truth. It's one that we have at the head of this chapter, and we want to keep a hold of it, good grip on it as we continue on in weeks to come. And it is simply this, that Jesus is in fact in control of the future. He is in control of the future of all things, of the entire world. Listen to what we read at the beginning of verse one. Then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals, You remember that John, who wrote the book of Revelation, was recently despairing and weeping because here was this scroll with seven seals upon it, and there was no one to open it. He knew somehow by God's revelation that something inside those scrolls could be revealed and could make sense of the world, and yet there was no way to open it. Can you imagine having something of of so great a treasure? You might think in in material items like gold and silver or money or or some other kind of of truth that you feel would, would solve a big problem in your life. If that thing were in a box and locked up, but there was no one with the key, how despairing that would be. There it is right in front of you, but you can't make any use of it. Well, that's why he was weeping. Because here is this scroll and there's no one able to open it until, until he realizes that there is one and that it is the lamb. And suddenly John is filled with relief because someone who is capable of opening the scroll is there and present and that's what he begins to do. So we read here of the first of the seven seals that Jesus breaks open on this scroll these seals representing perhaps a kind of kingly wax or seal marking the owner of the scroll, he who is in control of of whatever is written in there, these decrees, these events, these future-looking prophecies. And so here he is opening the seal. That's why we have to begin with him because he's the one who makes all of this possible. It's a reminder that he is in control of all things. As we look forward in the book of Revelation, we see all of these future events unfolding. And the clear point at the very beginning of chapter 6 is that these things don't happen as a happenstance. They don't happen independent of God. They don't just happen out because someone else has decided that they would happen. They happen for one reason and one reason alone. And it is because the Lamb is the King. It's because the lamb is the one who has power not only to open and break the seals and open the scroll and reveal what's inside, but that he is down through the ages from eternity past all the way into eternity future, the only one who has authority and power and control and glory to write what is inside the scroll. That's very different than just opening it. That's very different than just standing by and seeing what comes out. It means that Jesus is the one who is ultimately in control of all things in the world in the future. And so he breaks this first seal. And it's a kind of thing sort of like the curtain opening on a stage to reveal the next scene of the play. We'll see this over and over again as he breaks the seals. The curtain will open and a new vision, a new scene, a new future event will play out on the stage of scripture of this scroll. 
And so Jesus is opening one by one. But still, we want this this comforting truth, just like it was in the, the storm shelter just the other night, that even having a stack of the commentaries in the book of Revelation brought up some kind of anxiety about what could this mean? What is this tornado? We have wars going on and there's famines going on and suddenly there's storms right here. Are we in trouble? This is the comforting truth. The comforting truth is that even though we know, we know that there is trouble coming, we know who has written it in the scroll. And even though we know that trouble will come and we may feel it, we know who is worthy not only to break the seals and open the scroll, but to care for us in the midst of it. That's why this truth, this doctrine of Jesus' ultimate sovereign control is so very important. It's so important. It's one of the first truths that we teach to our children, isn't it? In little songs that we sing at night, we used to sing this song every night. If there was one request that came up over and over again when these two older girls were very little in their bunk beds, it was that he holds the the whole world in his hands. And we would talk about all the different kinds of little things that mattered to them when we sang that song. He has the whole world in his hands. He has the little girls in his hands. He has the little boys in his hands. He has all of the stuffed animals in his hands. He has our bunk beds and our house and our yard and our cars and everything in our lives in his hands. But there is some place where that has gone wrong. And that is because that song, for many of us, has never left their room. It's a nice Sunday school song. It's a song for little kids to help them fall asleep at night. But when it comes to the important things of life, when it comes to adult living, when things get really hard, when you can't make the bills or when you lose your job or you face some other kind of pressure or trouble or tribulation or temptation in in the world or you find yourself caught in your sin, well, that song is out the window. But does he really hold those things in his hands? Well, this verse and many others tells us, yes, he does. He holds all of those things in his hands. And that song and this truth is meant to be a comfort to us, and it is an important starting point. We must not skip past it. If you skip past that truth and you start reading and seeing what comes out of those scrolls, you will be in despair. But if you cling to the one who breaks the seals, the one who writes in the scroll, the one who rules all of history, past and future and present, you will have comfort. So here's the very basic comfort coming out of my daughter's little room by their bunk bed into our lives, into our church, into our homes, even now in this moment, he controls our lives of the good And sometimes what we think of as the bad, he is in absolute sovereign control. There can be, for some of us, nothing scarier than that. But when we understand the nature of this God, there's nothing more comforting than that, is there? That everything that comes in and out of your life has gone across his desk. And everything that comes into your life, everything across his desk, he has signed with his kingly pen. He's never caught off guard. He's never caught sleeping. He's never wringing his hands in heaven, wishing that he had an answer to the problems of our lives. But rather, he is in radical, mysterious, astounding control. 
But you know, that truth for me has often not been enough. People have told me that in times of hardship and trouble, but it has not comforted me because even that statement, God is in control, it still lacks something. Because it doesn't tell me what kind of God is in control. And that's what we need to add to that statement. He controls our lives with covenant love. That's what we need to add to that. That's part of what we're hearing in the book of Revelation and throughout the scriptures. He controls our lives with covenant love. That he is the God of of a covenant of grace that in fact has begun or found its some mysterious origin in eternity past when God, before the foundations of the world, chose to be in covenant with you. He chose, if you're in Christ, to set his love on you knowing exactly the kind of sinful person you would be, knowing that you would be his enemy through the fall of Adam and Eve, our first parents, and that your heart would be captivated by sin in such a way that you would become a slave like me, unable to escape, unwilling to escape, uninterested in escape, disinterested in him. But yet because of his covenant love, he chose to set his love on us. He chose to change our hearts and to bring us into this covenant with him, which is a family agreement of promises and conditions, and that he chose by his grace to keep all of those conditions, to do all of the things that we never could have done, keeping all of his commands. We've never done that. We never could. And yet he gave Christ to do that for us. He controls all things with covenant love. But you know what? That even is not enough. Because it doesn't take into account this hard, fallen world necessarily. And what does it mean when everything seems to be falling apart and so many powerful people seem to oppose him and his people on the earth? So I think we should add one more thing to this hopeful statement of Revelation 6.1 when he opens the first seal, and that is that he controls our lives with covenant love, unhindered. Think about that for a moment. The Lord himself has never been hindered, not once. There are all kinds of things that he cannot do, and there are all kinds of things that he does not know. One of those is, he does not know what it's like to be hindered. He has never been hindered in his will. No one has ever thwarted his will. He's never been disappointed with his will. But rather, he controls the world in covenant love, unhindered. And it is a marvelous, beautiful reality. Because John says, I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals that he was worthy and he was in control. Well, now we move on to the next part of verse one as we move into another truth. And this truth is one that's pretty hard for us to get our hearts and minds around, but we'll do our best this morning with God's help. And that's because we see when he opens the seal and the scroll begins to open, something coming out. Notice that when he broke the seal, it triggered something to happen. And what it triggered again was something we saw earlier in Revelation, and that was a response by those around him. Sometimes it is the creatures that are there ever worshiping him. Sometimes it's others, uh, the picture of his people there who are triggered or, or they are um, caused to worship him. But here we see that when he breaks open the seal, John hears one of the four living creatures. 
You remember those four strange creatures with eyes all around them in this really amazing picture? And, and one is like a lion and one has the face of a, of a man. One's like a calf and one soars like an eagle. We don't know which one it is, but we do find out what happens when he breaks open the seal. That living creature says with the voice of thunder. Just as we were in that shelter, hearing the thunder outside, it communicates anytime you hear it, this strength, this power. And here is this creature speaking with power. Come. This creature is calling on something or someone to come out of the scroll. And that's where we meet the first of the four horsemen of Revelation. Now, as we meet this first horseman, horsemen of revelation we're going to see something unexpected perhaps when he opens that seal and the scroll unfurls and out comes the first horse with someone riding on it it's the beginning as we look at the rest of them and we've already read them it's the beginning of a period of intense judgment on the world let's notice what he says in verse 2 as we read about this first horse and the one who rides on it I looked and behold a white horse and the one who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. I think that the opening of this first seal is the beginning of, a, of an intense period of tribulation and judgment on the world that out of the scroll comes along with these other four seals being broken and we'll see those in weeks to come, war and famine and death, serious things upon the world that we see this beginning. And I think that this first is a kind of judgment of deception in the world. This unlocking or breaking of the seals is what's leading to a kind of purifying of the world, a purifying of the church, and judgment upon the world. And it begins here with the first horse and the first of the four horsemen. Now, I think that it's tempting for all of us when we read this to, to immediately think of this as Jesus. Why would we think of this as Jesus? And, and some have, some really fine commentators and scholars look at the passage and say, this sure does look like Jesus riding on a white horse. He has a bow and a crown and he's royal and he's going out to conquer. And that, that seems like maybe it makes sense. That's something that we could see happening in the world as Jesus is reigning and ruling, as he's breaking open the seals. One of the reasons why this is an assumption that could be made is because a similar picture comes up in Revelation 19. This is where we get to look at some other places in the, in the book and, and, and try to make sense of what's going on as we look at other parts of Scripture. I'll just read this for us, a few verses from Revelation 19, because it's a place where we read about someone who sure does appear to be the Lord Jesus himself, and he is riding on a white horse. Listen to what it says in verse 11 of, my, of chapter 19. I saw heaven opened, and behold... A white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What an amazing image of what's coming in the future. We'll get there in the coming weeks when we finally reach Revelation 19, but right now we're still here in chapter 6. Now, when I look at this, uh, along with some other commentators who have been helpful to me, I don't think that this is Jesus. I think that it doesn't fit here with the rest of the passage for this to be Jesus for a few different reasons. Though he is on a white horse, we do also know from Scripture that, 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 that the color white or a white horse can represent righteousness, but we also see that that color white can be quite misleading because we, we know that we have an enemy who deceives us. He masquerades as an angel of light, and he would look very much like this. It also is interesting to notice how things come together, that the lamb himself, who is supreme above all, breaks open the first seal, and then one of the four living creatures that is created to live in submission to him, always worshiping him, always doing his bidding, always singing out about his holiness, then says, come. Well, it just doesn't make sense to me that that he would tell Jesus to come, and then Jesus would obey him. But perhaps it's someone else, something else going on. I think that it's fine to see this as Christ, but, but this is not what I think. And this is one of those places in Scripture where it's just, it's just so difficult to understand we're all going to learn in the future exactly what this means. And we make the best sense of it that we can now. So to me, it doesn't make quite good sense that, that one of the created be- beings in service to Christ would, would order Christ to come. Also, we don't see Jesus depicted this way in Scripture other places as having, having a bow, but it is an important truth. But rather, we see also this crown. And so when we put all of this together, it seems to me that there's something else going on, and it is the judgment of deception in the world, perhaps in the future, the unleashing of the Antichrist. That there is someone along with these other seals being broken, bringing war, bringing famine, bringing death, And here he is riding on this white horse with a bow, but not with any arrows and with a crown. But what kind of crown? It's interesting to think about that crown for a moment because I do think that it gives some insight into what's going on here about this rider. The crown seems to be more like a wreath, sort of like what you would imagine in times past in the Olympics when there would be Olympic athletes who would, who would be preparing, training, and then finally competing, and those who would win would win a wreath that would be put on their heads or around their necks, a victor's wreath. But what's so interesting about this rider is that this rider is not given a crown or a wreath after the event, but is given the crown or wreath before the event. It's a striking picture of coming victory, Victory that is promised, victory that is given. And here, of course, is victory given by Christ himself, the one who breaks open the seals. So I think that a better interpretation is that this is a, is a judgment of deception, whether that's involving, again, the, the Antichrist or because of this imagery of war, someone on a horse without any arrows but with a bow, the picture of, of maybe the threat of war, but yet conquering and conquering in a kind of peace. There's no mention of a sword. There's no mention of arrows. 
but rather there's conquering. It could be that through the, the threat of war, the threat of punishment of other governments perhaps, or the powers of the beast that we see later in the book of Revelation, that that's what's mentioned here. <clears throat> Jesus does, though, later ride on a white horse. But it seems like something else going on here. We actually warned about this in the book of Second Chronicles. In Paul's letter, he talks about what will happen in the future. And it seems to coincide here and also with another passage we'll look at in just a moment, but listen to this first. When Paul says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness and whose end will be according to their deeds. A judgment like this, that there would be a a work of, of deceiving power in the world to purify or to draw the lines between those who who truly know Christ and those who will fall away by deception seems also to fit in with those other three horsemen. Again, this horseman goes out conquering by peace, without arrows. I don't know exactly what that means, but I just wonder how much that has to do with, with perhaps arguments. How do you conquer without arrows and without a sword? Of course, we know by our own experience that this, this can happen with words, that words are powerful. They're like arrows. They're like swords. They are persuasive. So it's perhaps words and ideas. Again, this is not something that's surprising to us if we've read our Bibles well, because this picture is painted for us, I believe, in what we read as the public reading of Scripture this morning. And that is what I think is the forward Look at the great tribulation where those patterns of these things of of deception and untruth are intensified in a time of tribulation coming. I don't know for sure, but I believe that, that the people of Jesus will go through that time and we want to be ready that we will endure and he will walk with us, but it will be a, a terrible time of tribulation. And I think perhaps this first writer is the first mark of that time, something that we see intensified, continuing over and over again, even down through the ages, the repeated tribulations. Listen to what we read in Matthew 24 once again as we think about what could be coming in the future. Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will mislead many people. And you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, but all of these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Then they will hand you over to tribulation and kill you. That's something that we'll see actually in chapter 6 in just a couple of weeks. And many will fall away and they will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise up and mislead many people. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will become cold. But the one who endures to the end is the one who will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then 
the end will come. So as we look at these four horsemen and we continue to unpack them over coming weeks, we'll see over and over again the the unfurling of this plan of God that includes these really hard, difficult realities. And we want our hearts to be ready. You know, prior to the cross, there is left a kind of tension. As those who were living then are looking forward to the promised Messiah, but not exactly sure when, not exactly sure how, not exactly sure who, until he arrives. And in that time, it was impossible not to live in the tension of both feeling the pressure and the weight of the law of God bearing down on them, yet looking for the one who would come and redeem them, who would fulfill all of that righteousness and, as we know, give it to us as a gift, that is Jesus, through his life and death and resurrection. But you know, on this side of the good news, I'm not in favor of of leaving the tension hanging. Because now that we know who is Christ and now that we are reading into the word of God the great truths that have become so clear to us from the rest of scripture, I think that we should always try to comfort our hearts. And so I want to do that this morning as we've considered this first breaking of the seal and the first horseman on his white horse and this what may be a conquering deception of the world, purifying the church to be comforted in the truth. To put it simply, Jesus will bring this intensified judgment, as we said earlier, to purify the church and to punish the nations. When we hear that, it brings to our minds, at least it brings to my mind, both a real concern, but also a comfort. And as we come to a close with this time this morning and then sing again, I I want to just bring those to our minds so that we can resolve that tension even as we look forward, read forward, live forward toward these coming days. First, the concern. I think that it is a real concern clearly represented in Scripture that even God's people are susceptible to deception. Even those who would count themselves among God's chosen people, among his church, those who belong to him, that there is a susceptibility to deception. Now that should not be surprising to us, having walked together through the last two years. Because most of us have spent much of the last two years either distracted or deceived by pandemic and political circumstances, and stories. In fact, though I consider social media to be a good gift, and it can be leveraged for good works for the gospel, I wonder more and more, coming out of the last couple of years, if perhaps social media is not a gift to reveal to us just how easily we are deceived. How easy easy it is to be misled, to make assumptions, and to be pulled off course, and even distracted from what is most important. We all know the sting. I know it too. We all know the sting of that realization over the last couple of years. The opportunities that we have missed, the joy that has been robbed of us in Christ, because our eyes were taken off of the prize. That's a sobering reminder to us, and it also lends some additional light even to this passage how serious we should take this and how we should look forward and be careful. It's no wonder that in Matthew 24 that Jesus says, see to it. See to it that no one misleads you for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. Many will come saying, I am the hope. I am the one who will take care of you. I am the one who will make your life right. I am the one who will fix the world. 
He says, see to it that no one misleads you. We are so easily misled. But yet, there is a comfort. And that comfort is in the very person who breaks the seal, the very person who writes in the scroll, and the very person who perseveres with his people. Because one of the beautiful realities of being a Christian is that we have not only the doctrine of Christ and his supremacy, that he is exalted and lifted high, that he is in control of all things, and that no one can thwart his plans, is also the doctrine of the perseverance of his saints. That those who know him, those who belong to him, will persevere even through the worst of tribulations, not because of anything that they can do, but because of what he can do. Because he walks with them. He cares for them. This is the comfort. What that means is that as we know in the Christian life, there are two sides. It's different than the way that we came to Christ. When we came to Christ, we came to Christ in one side. There was only one person working. There was only one person saving. We didn't join him. We didn't help him. We didn't meet him in the middle. But rather, he came and he rescued us. And having changed our hearts now, though, our walk with him is two-sided. It is a cooperation. We are working by his grace while his grace is working in us. And therefore, as we think about this, and we think about what's to come, and we want to prepare our hearts and know that even these things are happening to a degree now, and that we are prone to deception, we are prone to serious temptation and trouble, we want to take seriously both of those. And they come to us in a passage, just a couple of verses, and then I want to give three brief applications In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, such a helpful passage about this. What should we be doing with our lives? How should we see these days? Listen to this. Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says for us to work out our salvation. There is a kind of urgency and intensity and energy that we, by God's grace, are able now to put into our spiritual lives, and we ought to be doing that. But the reason that we can do that is because God also is working. In fact, he is the first worker. That we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And then in verse 13, Paul says this, for it is God who is at work in you, both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. And that is our hope. That is how we can make it through these tribulations, these hard times now, and when they're intensified in the future, we can make it through because he is working, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's working in all of us. And that's the beautiful reality that we must cling to. As we come to the end of just these couple of verses and we sort of want to resolve a little of the tension and then we're going to move on to the next of the horsemen and do the same thing again, just a few points of application. They are simple, but they are important. Commit your life to Christ who is in control, number one. That could mean that you're here today and that you're not a Christian. That there's a, a lot of what I'm talking about is foreign to you, not, not just those kind of strange things in the book of Revelation, but what it means to know Christ to identify yourself as someone who truly belongs to him, that he knows you and you know him 
and you are together, if that's you, then you need to commit yourself to Christ. You need, if he wills to work in you and you sense that he's drawing you, that you would repent of your sin and you would fall before him and place your trust in him. You can do that today. You can be converted today. You can belong to him, become a Christian today. And I pray that you will, for the rest of us who are already Christians, it does not end there. Our commitment needs to be renewed over and over again because we know how easily we're deceived. We're so easily distracted and pulled off course. We commit ourselves to all other kinds of things and people. And so we need to renew our commitment. It could be that that is the calling of God for you today. You need to renew your commitment to Christ and to his control in his covenant love, which is unhindered. Perhaps that's what you need to do. You're living your life in a, in, a, in a tornado of worries and anxieties and fears. We all know the temptation of that, especially in times like these. But if that's you, then you need to recommit yourself to the Jesus who breaks the seals, who writes in the scrolls and controls everything unhindered by his love. Second, we must know, no, no. I know this sounds so familiar. We're going to say it over and over again. Till kingdom come. No, 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 your Bible. You, like me, probably often feel that your Bible is very thin. That when life hits, you only have a few pages and they just don't seem to say what you need them to say. Will you, like me, need a thicker Bible then? And the only way that your Bible can be thicker is by knowing it, by feeding on it, by reading it, by knowing it. So make that in your commitment to Christ. Make that your number one priority. I want to hear from you, God, in your word. I want to know what you say. Everybody else has something to say to me. Everybody else has something to post. They all have DMs. They want to get their message across. No. I want to know what you have to say because what you say matters. And then finally, there is a reason why we are given all of this as a gift is so that we could make him known. That our knowledge of his word and his truth, of his supremacy, our commitment to his control, even our knowledge of the future would increase our joy. And then our gladness would be so big that it would overflow that we would want to tell other people about this and make him known to them. We want other people to hear about Christ and come to know him. But that is also working out our salvation. That doesn't just happen. It happens because God's grace works in us, and by grace, we work out with the gospel into the world. That's what we want to be doing. So let's do that together. Let's commit ourselves to those three applications in the coming weeks. And let's make it a real serious point of prayer that God would, please, God, help us. Help us to understand what his word says to us. We carry these truths deep and heavy, sometimes a little terrifying, with us into this next time of singing yet again. And then on as we go through the rest of our day today and, and gather together again this week. So let's make it a matter of prayer now and invite you to stand with me. We'll ask God to yet again renew our commitment to him, help, him, uh, help us to know him and make him known and to rejoice as we see marvelous things in his word, as we have this morning, our Father, we, <clears throat> we come before you with real gratitude. Well, it's an amazing uh, situation that we, of all people, could come before you, of all gods, 
and that you have made this way through the work, the life, death, and resurrection of your son, all by grace as a gift to us. That's an amazing thought, and we pray it would never be lost on us. And so now as we have read some serious things from your word about these coming times and even the reminder that these kinds of things are happening now and that, that some of us, uh, some of our friends are, are, are wrestling with these deceptive forces in the world, God, we pray, keep us focused on you. Make us know your word. Give us clear vision, clear, clear heads, clear hearts so that we can walk with you. And we give you thanks that you will persevere us as we stay close to you. Help us to do that together as a church. Make our church about that. Make us about that in our homes, in our neighborhoods, our workplace, employment everywhere. Make us about you and your reigning supremacy and your covenant love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.